Welcome to the Stuttgart Missional Community Church Sermon Podcast. SMCC is a multicultural church serving the English-speaking community in Stuttgart, Germany. For more information or to contact us, visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net. Well, if you'd open up your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, Zechariah, page 1310, page 1310. Stacy gets it. Everybody's Bible's different. I don't know where it is in your Bible, but take your time and find it. If you have to use the table of contents, so be it. It actually is 11 chapters long. What? No, it's not right before Matthew. Malachi is right before Matthew. Just mind your business. Just kidding. She's right. It is slightly before Matthew. If you're in Matthew, you've gone way too far, that's for sure, okay? So, Zechariah, a minor prophet. And sometimes grinding through these minor prophets uh, can be a little uh, difficult, okay? At least for me. Maybe it's not difficult to hear, but it definitely can be difficult to preach because it seems like all of the prophets have the same message, right? You have fallen short. Judgment is coming. The Savior is promised. I mean, we've heard this several weeks in a row now, and... Um, Zechariah is really not all that different, but what he does get into that the others don't are the offices uh, that Jesus fulfills in his coming, and so that's what we're really going to focus on today. But as you're turning to Zechariah, I just want to take a straw poll real quick. How many of you have been to Disney World or Disneyland? Raise your hand. Okay, not Paris Disney, just Disney World, Disneyland. Okay, now put your hand down. Uh, How many of you have not been but hope to go with your family someday? Okay. Two of you, okay. So a few of you, few of you want to go, but you have not been. Why, 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 why? I, I, okay. So here's what here's my experience in Orlando last August. Now, again, I'm not a Disney basher, but this is what happened to me last August as I was home. We did not go to Disney, but as soon as we got off the plane, there were a million kids. It's August in Orlando. Picture this, okay? August in Orlando, all of the windows on the airport are fogged over. You can't see anything because of the difference in the humidity and the temperature outside and inside. There are kids everywhere. We stand in line at the rental counter, which by far was the longest line of any line we had stood in all day on the trip home. All around us, Tons of screaming kids, just screaming, like, just can't wait for the vacation to start, I guess, or the vacation is over. I can't figure out which one because it's just a hot mess down there. Then that does not stop for two weeks. Every restaurant we go to, ah! every store we go to, ah! just crazy. It's 100 degrees with 100% humidity. Now, this is Florida, not California. And the kids, the itinerary of the Disney vacation is just wearing them out. Now, I'm sure that they are much more pleasant for like the first three hours of the day. Like I would think that between eight, probably getting up, getting breakfast, and noon, they're good. But after that, it was a complete meltdown. And, you know, here's the thing about Disney vacations and all vacations, really. Uh, Whether you're going to Disneyland or you're going fishing up north in Wisconsin, which is what my family always did. Uh... You, you, you kind of build these up in your head. 
you know, like, oh man, this is going to be the ultimate vacation. And you just picture everybody happy, the kids smiling for 12 hours, never getting tired, the, the food at Disney being cheap and easy to get, right? The lines being short and the fast pass actually being worth the extra $50. And, you know, you envision all these things and you get there and that's just not quite reality. A lot of vacations, you know, Uh, And even when we look back at the vacations, we tend to remember only those good parts. Not that it was a million degrees. Not that you were sweating from the moment you woke up and went outside. I'm telling you, I have never experienced anything like that before. Because in South Texas, people think it's humid in Texas. It's actually not. It's very dry where where we're from. And uh, we just weren't used to that. But listen, there's some things that all Christians look forward to. And that's the return of Christ. We are looking forward to Jesus' second coming. And, you know, we have a tendency to build this up in our head too, right? We think about, oh, how great it's going to be and how great it's going to be when we see the Lord and when he comes and takes his church. And I want to tell you, though, that no matter what you are imagining (coughs) about this, no matter what your vision is of the Lord's returning, it's not overestimated, it's not overhyped, it's underhyped. No matter what you think heaven is like, no matter what you think seeing Jesus is like, no matter what you think that's going to be, it's going to be better. It's going to be better, I promise. And uh, you don't have to take my word for it. You could take the entirety of the Bible's word for it. That no matter, our minds cannot conceive of what eternity with Jesus is going to be. We just can't even fathom it. What it's like to live in a world that does not know sin. Can you imagine? No, you can't. You can't because ever since we've been born and ever all of our all the generations past they've always had to deal with the problem of sin but when Jesus returns he's going to put an end to sin he's going to put an end to its effects Now look at Zechariah Imagine being around some hundred hundreds of years before the birth of Christ and trying to explain what his first coming was going to look like what it was going to be like for Jesus to come the first time and be born uh of, of humble beginnings and to ride into Jerusalem on a colt, a donkey. Zechariah points, paints oh, just a wonderful picture of Jesus in his offices and who he is because Jesus just fulfilled every office of ministry. He is our priest. He is our king and he is our willing substitute. And that's everything Zechariah says about him. Now we're going to go through 11 chapters in one sermon. Okay, We're not going to read it all. We're going to skip around. But if you want to read all of Zechariah, which I encourage you to do, um, because all of this Old Testament study that we've gone through over the last 18 months or so is a wonderful foundation and precursor, and it's going to make the New Testament in a few weeks just come alive. I want to tell you that. If you invest in understanding the Old Testament, you will have a greater understanding of what Jesus has done for you. So go with me to Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, they are men, uh, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Notice most of your Bible should have branch capitalized because this is a direct reference to Jesus. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. I'll skip down to verse 12 of chapter 6. Okay? 
And then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. What Zechariah is pointing to here is Jesus, our great high priest. Now see, I am not a priest. Sometimes, you know, Catholic people refer to me as priests, right? If their background is Catholicism, they'll... I've even been referred to as father before, uh, just because there's no other vernacular. I grew up Roman Catholic myself. There's no other vernacular for somebody who does what I do in the priesthood, you know, I mean, in the Roman Catholic Church, it's priest, that's it. And so I've always had to, you know, of course I correct them. I'm not your, I'm not father, I'm just Pastor Matt or Matt, that's fine. Um, but this idea where the Old Testament priesthood continues into the New Testament, while it is true, it continues through all of us. Amen? The Bible says that we are a royal priesthood. Who is we? All of us. Right? Because now there's no special dispensation for the priest. There's no special grace. There's no special blessing. Now, there may be anointing and gifting for those who do preach the gospel, but this idea that the priest is the only person who can enter the holies of holies, the only person who can minister before the throne of God, that's, that's gone. Because through Jesus, we all have that kind of access. We all have direct access to God. And so we can all pray as effectively as the pastor. We can all um, uh, have this access to God and have the, the, the knowledge that our prayers are heard because of what Jesus has done. And, but the office of priest, if there's, if there's an office of priest anymore, it's Jesus. Okay, this, our, our priest, right? We are a royal priesthood, but our priest is Jesus. That's it. Not me, not some bishop, none of that. Jesus is the priest that stands before God making intercession. And I thought about this this week. I mean, his intercession, he doesn't even have to utter a word. His presence is intercession, isn't it? Because he died on the cross. And at the right hand of the Father, he is a constant reminder to the Father that these people have been redeemed, that they've been saved. This is my son. I gave, uh, my son was a willing sacrifice upon the cross. Here he is. He's in my presence. This is intercession. Now, that, that's not limited to that, okay? Jesus' ministry is surely not limited to just standing there, right? But it is a reminder that we are the blood-bought children of God, and, and uh, God doesn't need reminding. I don't mean to insinuate God needs reminding, but if, you know, there's Jesus. There he is. That's, that's our intercessor. And so this great priest is, is standing at the right hand of the Father, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. And this imagery of the branch, I think, is just so profound. And you know, it's okay to let your imagination run wild uh, with some of this imagery uh, as far as picturing what the branch may mean. And uh, it means a couple things. In the Hebrew, it kind of means a bud that's springing out of an old dead stump. And this conjures imagery of out of humanity, dead humanity, comes life through Jesus Christ. Think of a branch like we are a people sinking in sin like quicksand. And, you know, rather than entering into the quicksand to try to say, the branch is extended to us and pulls us out of that quicksand, that sin. This way, Jesus, God the Father stays perfectly holy. He's not in the quicksand. He's not in the sin. He reaches out through Jesus and pulls us out. <clears throat> 
Jesus has made atonement for our sin through his sacrifice. And you talk about the vine. Zechariah talks about the vine, and the imagery of the vine is spoken of uh, throughout the entire Bible, the idea of Jesus uh, as, as a vine. And it talks about in the New Testament that we are grafted into the vine. It talks about how the, the vine, each one of us is, a, is an offshoot of that vine bearing fruit. And it's about expanding the kingdom of God. Zechariah says we will invite our friends and our neighbors to sit under the, sit under the vine. Have you ever been to wine country in, in, uh, in Germany? Have you ever been to, to uh, Bad Durkheim or places where there's, in the village, there are vines growing on houses and across the streets? Have you ever seen that? And how much shade those vines cast, uh, cast down upon the street and just how wonderful it would be to sit under that vine and, and, and just rest and relax. But that's not the invitation God gives us. He gives us an invitation to be part of that vine. And that vine, that grapevine, is like that thick, man. It's like really thick and really sturdy. And it's only those little offshoots that are kind of thinner and weaker. And Jesus is that central vine, church. And each one of us is an offshoot of that vine. And on those offshoots, what's coming off? The fruit, right? And God has called us to go and bear fruit. But we have to stay rooted in the vine. If we are cut off from the vine, we're destroyed. Amen? We die. And then lastly, you have the image of the stone. And of course, Jesus is our cornerstone. Now, I don't know much about masonry. Uh, I know a little bit about building. I know a little bit about constructing things and designing things. And I know that you need a solid reference point. I know that you need a place that you start your measurements from that is consistent and square. And that is the cornerstone. That is on Jesus is the person on whom we build our lives, from which we take every single measurement of our life is from Jesus. How does he think about my work? What does he think about my parenting? What does he think about me being a husband or a wife? What does Jesus think about this or that? This is the standard, and this is the point of reference that we take our measurements from. Why? Because like any good point of reference, we know it's true. Amen? We know it's true. We know it's absolute. And we can confidently build our lives upon Jesus and his word. As our priest... That's Delaney. I know that cry. (laughs) I know that cry. Praise the Lord. As our priest, we can trust Jesus and his word and confidently build our life upon it. Amen? So Jesus isn't just our high priest. Zechariah makes it clear that he is also our mighty king. In Zechariah 6.13, continuing on from 12, it says this, It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now, chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the full of a donkey. We see this quoted in the New Testament in Matthew. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and war from the horse of Jerusalem, and the battle, the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to river to the ends of the earth. We see here that Jesus is our mighty king, and he comes in peace. 
He comes in peace. I read earlier this week, uh, as everybody's getting ready for the Super Bowl, and not this weekend, but the next weekend, everybody's talking about football, and Aaron Rodgers was on some radio show, and he was talking about his faith in God. I believe he was brought up Christian, and his parents are Christian. And he, he commented that he can't believe in a God who wants to send people to hell, you know, most of the world to hell. Of course, that's not who God is at all. That's a complete misrepresentation and just shows his ignorance, even though he was brought up in church maybe, his ignorance of what the ministry of Jesus Christ is. It's not to bring destruction, but to bring peace. He is the branch. He is extended to us. He has extended the branch of peace, not the branch of war or destruction. He came that none should perish. That's why Jesus came. And you think about Jesus as both king and as priest. And in any other context, this is a very scary thing. Okay, when any government takes over the church, very scary. Bad things happen. Okay, when the seat of power of both the church and governmental rule is in one seat, that's a problem. But in Jesus, it's perfect. In Jesus, it's perfect. Why? Because He's perfect. There is no greed. There is no deceit. There is no. Jesus is never considering self. He is perfectly selfless. And so every decision he makes in both of these roles is perfect. We can trust in it. I remember when Saul tried to sit in both seats. Didn't go well for Saul when he, when he, when he decided he was going to take on some priestly duties and offer a sacrifice instead of waiting for Samuel. It didn't go well. Matter of fact, his throne was taken from him and given to David. It doesn't go well. But with King Jesus, our priest and our king, we can trust and know that he is in charge and everything is good. Amen? Now, King Jesus came to save the world, as I said, not to conquer it. He came to rescue his people from destruction. Actually, he led the charge against sin, and he paid the ultimate price for our freedom. It's the violence and brutality of his death. It's through that that we have the peace that we have with God. It is because he suffered violence. It is because he suffered abuse that we have peace. Not only peace with God, but we ought to have peace with one another. Amen? Romans says it this way, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Not with some, with all. And the key here is as it depends on you. Now I can tell you firsthand that there are going to be people who do not want to live at peace with you, right? And they are going to insist on battle. And you may find yourself as a Christian engaged in either physical or spiritual warfare against people who have made you their enemy. However, we are called to live peaceably with all. What's that mean? We should always be seeking a peaceable solution to our con- the conflicts in our lives. We should always be willing to accept the offer of peace, even through people who have done violence to us, right? We should always be looking for peace. And why? Because we were in conflict with God, right? We had made him our enemies, and we had done despicable, horrible things and sinned against him. But still, he offered us, us peace. What, ha- what has somebody done to you that you have not already done to Christ, Right? And still he offers us peace. He went to the cross for your sins. For your sins. Not his own. For yours. And so he extended peace as much as it depends on him. What did it, what did it depend on him? His death. 
He gave everything that we might have peace with God. And so we should have peace with God, but we should also strive to have peace with others as much as it depends on you living at peace with one another. And I want to tell you something, church, that when you take this to heart and you make it your mindset to live at peace with those people who cause you pain, who hurt you, who constantly trample on your good graces, even your best efforts to live at peace with them, you will have peace. I tell you this firsthand from someone who has suffered abuse, from someone who has suffered uh, injustice at the hands of people who should love them. I want to tell you that when you decide to offer peace, it frees you. It frees you. Maybe they don't pay any mind to it, but you now are living under freedom that, that Christ extends to you through living in peace. But when you find yourself in battle against people who decide who definitely are just bent on on doing battle with you remember that you're that even when Jesus was on the cross he prayed forgive them father for they know not what they do he understood who the real battle was against amen now Jesus came to offer peace the first time he came when he comes again it will be the Christ of judgment and we don't like to talk about this. I want to tell you that if you're in the church today and you're a born-again Christian, right? You're a Christian. You've given your heart and your life to Jesus. You do not need to fear the second coming of the Lord, okay? There's nothing to fear. The only people who have something to fear when Jesus comes back are those people who have decided to deny the grace of God and instead stand in their own righteousness before a holy God. Those people have something to fear. If that's you today, you have something to fear. But the Christian has nothing to fear in the return of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, this judgment that much of the Old Testament is talking about with, in regards to Jesus coming back and judging the world based on, on either whether they've accepted his grace or not, this is, this is not really a judgment for the church. The church will be caught up. As a matter of fact, I've explained this before, but I really need to say it again to make sure that you all understand that when you become a Christian, the, there is no more judgment to be passed. Judgment has already been passed, right? You have said, I am guilty. I have sinned against God. I have, I have grieved the heart of God. And, and I accept that Jesus took my punishment on my behalf. And as such, I worship him as Lord and Savior. I give my life over to him. He has redeemed me. I belong to him. Your guilt has already been confessed. You've already thrown yourself, as it were, upon the mercy of the court. And judgment has already been meted out. On you? No. On Jesus. Jesus took the punishment for your sin. When we were in kids' church, we would explain it like this. You stole $20 out of mom's purse. And mom was about ready to give you the belt. But before she gave you the belt, your older brother stood up and he said, wait a minute, I want to take the punishment for him for him or for her. I want to take that punishment. And it's unheard of. It's unheard of. But the older brother takes the beating instead of the younger one. This is what Jesus did. He's the substitutionary atonement. And this is important because I'm going to just linger on this a little bit before we go to our next point. We got a little bit of time. This is important to understand because when we talk about the forgiveness of God, I was discussing this with Stacy earlier this week. When we just say God forgives us because of what Jesus has done, it it, it kind of cheapens a little bit the cross, okay? Because it's not because God is love that we're forgiven. It's because Jesus died. 
And we can never, ever separate that, right? That it's not, you're just forgiven. It's not like God just said, okay, forget it. People do that. You know, it happens. That's not what happened. The wrath of God was poured out on the cross. The wrath of God against sin. And we know all through the Old Testament, God hates sin. He hates it. And instead of punishing you, like he punished Israel, sometimes the earth would open up and suck people in because of their sin, right? Uh, Moses' wife became leprous, right? And, and, and uh, the, uh, what's the guy with the pillar of salt? What's his name again? Lot, his wife turns around, becomes a pillar of salt, right? Instead of all of that wrath being poured out on you because of your sin, it's poured out on Jesus. That's why we're forgiven, it is love. God is love. And it is because of his love that we're forgiven, but it's because of his love poured out on the cross that we're forgiven. We can never separate the cross. It's not just, you know, Jesus loves God loves you and that's why you're forgiven. No, it's because Jesus died. And that's really, really important. It's a foundational thing for the Christian to understand, especially when we're explaining the gospel to somebody else. Okay? He is our perfect high priest. He is our high king but he's also our substitute. In Zechariah 13, 7 and 9, we see that Jesus is our shepherd and our substitute. It says this in verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. It's so obvious he's talking about Jesus here. Declares the Lord of hosts, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones in the whole land, declares the Lord. Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. One-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Jesus is our substitute. He is the shepherd who was struck down for our sins. The cross affirms that God's sovereignty extends even in the most tragic of moments. There's no greater tragedy in the history of mankind than the cross. No greater injustice than Jesus dying for sins he had not committed, but that we had committed. It is complete injustice, yet God's sovereignty prevailed. This does not make God the author of sin, okay? You think about, was sending Jesus to the cross sinful? Yes, right? Was, it, was he wrongfully convicted? Yes. Is that sin? Yes. That doesn't mean God creates sin. However, God does use the acts of sinful men to accomplish his purposes. The Bible's clear that God sometimes allows and sometimes even causes pain for the sake of accomplishing his purposes. Without Jesus substituting himself to take the punishment for our sin, of course, there is no Atonement. So it had to be the acts of sinful men that led to that. That doesn't mean that God causes it. It just means that he allows it for his greater purpose. At any time, any pilot could have turned away from his sinfulness and turned towards the Lord. That's for sure. He had freedom to do so. So in closing, I want to say this. What Christ has done on our behalf cannot be fully realized until we're in his presence. We will really never fully understand, even those who, of us who have walked with Jesus for a really long time, and we think we have a really good understanding of what Jesus has done, I don't think it'll be fully realized until we're at his feet. And the promise of eternity with him is in that moment, that very moment, fulfilled. We know that we know that we know 
in that moment that everything Jesus has promised is absolutely true. And to be in his presence and to experience that kind of forgiveness is, uh, it's going to be, I think we're going to be stammering for words and tears flowing out of our eyes. Even the most hardened heart will be broken uh, before him. I'm looking forward to seeing Jesus, you know. I'm looking forward to it. His return, the Bible tells, teaches Christians that we should always be looking for his return. And we know the manner in which he will turn. The Bible said re, will return. The Bible says he will come in the clouds. So look up. Look forward to the, the day Jesus returns. It's going to be awesome. It cannot be overestimated. It's better than the most perfect of vacations. It's better than retirement. It, it, it's, it's better than all of that. Of course, I don't need to wait until I'm dead or until his return to worship him as Lord. I can do so right now. I can appreciate him now. I can show him that I value his lordship and sovereignty, even in tough times. I can thank him for making the relationship possible. I can worship Jesus now. Let's do that together. Let's everybody stand. This morning, I'm doing something I rarely do, a responsive prayer. And I'd like us just to end this service with this prayer of response. I will... I will say a sentence and I just ask you to re repeat it, not just to repeat it, but to agree with me, not only with your mouth, but in your heart that, that Jesus is Lord and we're just going to give him thanks. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Repeat after me. Thank you for your ministry as our perfect high priest, Jesus. Thank you for clothing me in your righteousness. Thank you for allowing me to play a part in expanding the kingdom. Jesus, you are my Lord and King. I trust in your sovereignty and authority over your creation. I bow my heart in obedience to your rule. Thank you for taking my punishment for my sins against you. Thank you for bringing peace to our relationship and my relationship with others. Thank you for your promise to return for your church. Amen. Amen. Let's look forward to his return, church. Well, let's not wait for that day. Let's worship him and honor him in our lives today. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to the SMCC Sermon Podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net.